is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome back to our ongoing summer 2018 mini-series, Victorian Adaptations Adapting the Victorians. This is episode 5, What are Neo-Victorian and Steampunk Anyway? I'm Courtney, and I'm recording solo today. Eleanor is en route to the United States to do some research, and I'm about to be heading to London to participate in a conference and to do some research of my own, so we are... Oh, I can't even think of the saying trains passing in the night, something like that, um, and we're b both going to be covering some episodes solo as we do our thing this summer. So over the course of today's episode, I'm going to sketch out the definitions of neo-Victorian and steampunk fiction, I'm going to share some of my favorite books, tell you about some classics, and discuss why I think the genre and or the books in question are so interesting and compelling and powerful in the greater framework of 19th century literature and culture. Okay, so when I started to record this episode, I was so enthusiastic and I had so many thoughts about what to cover that this got a little bit disorganized and I forgot to explain some things that are really essential to your understanding of the discussion that follows. So I'm just going to lay them out here for you. Thing number one. When Victorianists talk about neo-Victorian fiction, we're usually interested in two major things. One is a question of whether or not that neo-Victorian novel or short story or whatever we're talking about um, is actively engaging with the past or just repeating it in a way. Some of the best neo-Victorian work is either trying to confront the ugliness of the past through fiction or trying to help us come to grips with how the past was and move past it, or trying to reimagine a better future by referencing the past. Um, and this comes in many shapes and forms, but often it has to do with rethinking Victorian attitudes and worldview regarding things like race, class, gender, sexuality, and disability. Thing number two is form, which is sort of an ambiguous and, and very broad category. Um, but I'll try to give you a sort of shorthand by what I mean by form. Um, so a lot of neo-Victorian fiction is sort of characterized by Victorian-style language and by sort of an imitation of the structure of classic Victorian novels. But imagine an asterisk after that word classic, because as, as you'll hear me talk about later, um, there really is no classic form of novel. The Victorian period is full of so many different kinds of novels. It's constantly reimagining what novels do. And this is just this one form, just apply that to all kinds of artistic production. 
And there's this sense among some scholars that I talk about in more depth later um, that neo-Victorian fiction is only presenting sort of white middle-class um, canonical novels to a 21st century readership and that that might not be something we want to unabashedly support. Like we need to champion this diversity of forms and also of cultures and worldviews and ways of existing that happened in the 19th century. Um, okay, so a couple of other things to note before we dive into the content today. One is that throughout the episode, I use the term popular in a way that might not be familiar to you. So in literary studies, when we're talking about popular literature, we're not necessarily talking about like New York Times bestsellers, although a lot of popular literature did sell well and wildly. Um, instead, it's a, a designator of value. So we have high literature or like kind of elite literature, and you should think um, George Eliot's Middlemarch here. And then popular on the other end of the spectrum. So this would be like comic books today are often viewed as, um, or dime novels of the 19th century. So while, like I said, popular literature could be like New York Times bestseller, amazing, uh, acclaimed, it has this sort of stigma to it that um, exists in scholarship today and is really frustrating too because popular can be doing brilliant and innovative things with form and content in literature that we don't want to miss out on. Okay, and then finally, um, because I was traveling so much this summer, this episode was recorded and edited in fits and starts, and so you'll have me popping in and out of the future. Um, I tried to keep it really clear and not confusing, but um, it's definitely noticeable, so uh, just do with that information what you will. Anyway, without further ado... Let's start with neo-Victorian fiction. Jessica Cox writes for the Oxford University Press that, quote, neo-Victorianism can be divided into two distinct categories, end quote. The first, she says, are, quote, creative works that in some way engage with Victorian literature and culture, end quote. And the second are, quote, scholarly works that seek to explore the shifting relationship with the Victorian period since its close in 1901, end quote. As you can hear, both of these definitions or both of these categories leave a lot of room for interpretation. So the first category might indicate creative works that engage solely with the aesthetics of the 19th century or copy the literary form or exist as a response to something from the 19th century. And the latter is just any form of scholarly or interpretive um, nonfiction work that sort of mediates between the Victorian period and our own creative productions today. 
That said, the term neo-Victorian is mostly used to refer to creative works, especially fiction and prose fiction, but it can also be used to refer to works like our summer miniseries that mediate between the Victorian period and later creative representations thereof. Most of the time when I hear the term neo-Victorian, it's being used to describe novels and short fiction, but it can be extended to things like board games, video games, web comics, graphic novels, and even film and TV, though the latter two are pretty rare in my experience. Something like the new BBC The Woman in White miniseries, for example, is considered an adaptation and not a neo-Victorian text, necessarily. But something like Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak might be more properly considered neo-Victorian. The term neo-Victorian has been the standard way to refer to these sorts of works since at least 2008. There were lots of alternative terms flying around before then, and you can find some of them in Jessica Cox's article for the OUP. Uh, but in 2008, the online open-source Neo-Victorian Studies journal was launched, and since then it's really been the defining text or the defining um, forum for what counts as Neo-Victorian, and there's lots of discussion of steampunk there too. If you're interested in going deeper on this topic after listening to this episode, I would suggest going there, actually, because you can read all of their back issues online for free, and there is lots and lots of great scholarship to be found there. So I'm going to engage in a little bit of time travel here and uh, talk about something that I heard at the Victorian Popular Fiction Association conference I attended in London. At a keynote on the state of the field at the, on the final day of the conference, Juliet John spoke briefly about the role of neo-Victorian fiction in Victorian studies, particularly as it relates to the study of popular fiction. Um, she urged those of us in attendance to have caution about neo-Victorian fiction. Um, there has been a lot of exuberant um, work on neo-Victorian fiction as a way to interest people in the period and the literature of the, of the Victorian era, um, and as something that's bringing attention to the field. But uh, John argues that Neo-Victorian fiction can be something of an ossifying force, that it presents Victorian fiction as a monolith, that it erases popular fiction in some ways. Um, and what I think that she was saying, um, I don't, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but the sense that I got was that um, Neo-Victorian fiction, for John, often bases itself on the more the more um, canonical works that we still read today, so Dickens or George Eliot, uh, even Wilkie Collins, who's sort of a borderline figure. Some people really recognize him, even though he's more popular than, say, Dickens or Eliot, um, and that it really sort of takes away the specificity of popular fiction and the forms and, and the, and the, that the forms it appeared in and the things it engaged with, that it sort of makes it seem as though there's only one kind of Victorian fiction and only one kind of Victorians with its focus on the middle class and upper classes. And that's sort of stuck with me since I heard it. And I think that that can be true, although I think that with the sort of broader encapsulation of neo-Victorian fiction that might include things like historical novels or speculative novels uh, or new media, 
that sort of ossification, that sort of focus on the canon might be mediated. And I think actually that steampunk that's set in the 19th century might also be a way that we see this being mediated a little bit. Um, in the episode, not next week's episode, but the one after, I'm going to talk about a podcast that I really like that I think features some of the things that are best about Victorian popular fiction. And it's definitely a sort of speculative neo-Victorian podcast. Um, so I think that this is a concern that we need to be mindful of, but I think that actually authors are already working to incorporate more forms, and this is something maybe to be encouraged in neo-Victorian fiction or for creative people to be mindful of if they want to create a sort of neo-Victorian piece. Okay, let's talk books. First up is Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea, which is genre-defining, field-defining, um, published in 1966. This is a, um, a revisionist prequel to Charlotte Bronte's 1847 Jane Eyre. Um, it is gorgeous. It is sweeping. Full disclosure, I only started reading it last night. I think I'm about halfway through, um, but feminist and post-colonial critique of Bronte's earlier work. Um, stylistically, it's kind of hard to read as a neo-Victorian novel because unlike more recent work, which tries to sort of imitate 19th century writing and speech patterns, this is very much a mid-20th century literary fiction feel. Um, so the language, while stunning and the the um, story, while powerful, doesn't feel Victorian to me in the same way that some of the later works I will talk about do. This is future Courtney popping in to say that I did finish reading Wide Sargasso Sea shortly after recording this episode, and while I thought that its critique of the patriarchal systems at work in uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre was unrelenting and powerful, this skewed a little white feminist for me. Um, there were power systems at play that I would have liked to see explored more, and I know um, that's like really my modern sensibility reaching back on what was really a progressive and important work, um, but just FYI, those were my overall thoughts about the novel. Up next is actually the first neo-Victorian novel I ever read. It's John Fowle's The French Lieutenant's Woman, published in 1969, and it is a postmodern um, neo-Victorian tale following the titular French Lieutenant's Woman and her struggles with conventional 19th century gender roles and social mores. Um, it's a really fascinating story. It's where the postmodern bit comes in is that there are four alternative endings, each of which invites you to reevaluate the story that's come before and the main character and her decisions. And uh, I'd highly recommend this one. 
The third neo-Victorian novel I have for you today is Margaret Power's Goblin Fruit. It's published in 1987. Now, I haven't actually read this one. I've just heard so many good things about it. It's kind of hard to get your hands on. It's out of print. Um, this is a neo-Victorian novel that really engages with the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. So if you've been enjoying our focus on Victorian adaptations of the medieval period and the pre-Raphaelites so far, this is the choice for you. If you read it, please tweet at me and let me know. I'd love to hear about your experience. Number four is A.S. Byatt's Possession, 1990. So odds are you've probably heard about this one, especially if you've heard about neo-Victorian fiction at all. It's kind of half neo-Victorian, half um, then it was contemporary. Now it feels like 20 years in the past because it is. Um, so it follows a team of researchers in the, quote, present as they explore the archives and through those archives, the lives of two literary um, powerhouses in the Victorian period, and it's lovely, and it's all about the romance of the archive, so um, highly recommend this one as well. Then, um, I've included Kim Newman's Anno Dracula, 1992, as neo-Victorian because it's really uh, cleverly engaging with and reimagining Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula for a modern audience, and it's playing with media in a lot of the same ways that the original novel does, and um, it includes characters like Stoker and his wife and a variety of other Victorian figures, and it's just brilliant. I keep saying that. I'm not great at book reviews, you guys. Um, okay, so then that one is kind of maybe a stretch as neo-Victorian in that it's speculative neo-Victorian, something a term I'll get back to later, um, not necessarily widely used, something I've developed for my dissertation. But um, Sarah Waters, you've probably heard her name. You've maybe even seen some film and TV adaptations of her work. Um, I've got two novel recommendations for you today. The first is Tipping the Velvet, 1998 which I've read. It's kind of a, um, it's a very calm neo-Victorian novel. There's not a lot that happens. If you like, um, 19th century dance halls and, um, discussions of performance and spectacle, then this is for you. Oh, also, BTW, Sarah Waters is one of the first neo-Victorian novelists, um, to really sustainedly address queerness in the 19th century. Uh, and my other Waters recommendation is Fingersmith, published in 2002. I have not read this one. It's the one that everyone tells me I need to read. It's a neo-Victorian novel along the lines of Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White. Um, so it's got the intricate plotting, it's got the crime and the mystery, and... Um, this is on my to-be-read list. I'm hoping to get to it super soon. This is the one, if you're picking a Sarah Waters novel to read, that you should start with, according to everyone I've ever spoken to about it, ever. Um, and then my final neo-Victorian recommendation for you is Leslie Marmon Silgo's Gardens in the Dunes, 1999. Now this, a lot of people would contest as neo-Victorian because it's set largely in the southwestern United States, but I picked it specifically to remind everyone that there was a whole world outside of Britain in the 19th century and that 
Um, there was a rise of concepts of globalism in the 19th century that it might be worth exploring and that fiction explores those things. And I will harp on this more when I talk about steampunk fiction. But Silco's Gardens in the Dunes is a beautiful and heartbreaking exploration of the life of Indigo, who is a, one of the last sand lizard people living in Arizona in the 19th century at the time of the story. Um, the action ping-pongs from Arizona to California to New Mexico and then abroad to Britain and uh, other parts of the world. Um, and Indigo has to grapple with the loss of her family and her culture and her identity in a broader world, and you don't want to miss this story. Alright, so now on to steampunk. Steampunk is a much broader category than neo-Victorian in that it can refer to creative works like fiction, film, art, and etc., but it can also refer to lived experiences like LARPing and cosplay. When the term is used to talk about literature and film, it denotes, a, it denotes works that fall broadly into the category of sci-fi fantasy, and that might borrow from the 19th century aesthetically, socioculturally, and or technologically, but not necessarily any or all or mo multiple of those at the same time. These kinds of works may or may not be set in the 19th century. They could be set on a secondary world. They could, um pull aspects of the 19th century into an imagined future, um, but for this episode I'm going to be focusing specifically on steampunk set on Earth during the 19th century. Now notice I said set on Earth and not in Britain because again there's a whole world in the 19th century whose interconnections and conflicts and tensions are really worth exploring and it's not just worth exploring from the British point of view. So a lot of this uh, a lot of my recommendations are going to sort of displace this outward from the British metropole or London um, and England more generally um, to other cultures and colonies and countries. Um, this is not a complete list though and there are a lot of people doing really important work here. So if you have recommendations, please pass them along as well. So disclaimer here, it's possible probable that I've read no classic steampunk whatsoever. Um, looking at lists of classic genre-founding novels, I was just drawing blanks. I've read mostly more recent work, um, but I have linked to a list of classic novels if you want to go check that out, and I'll just be focusing on what I know for this episode. So we want to start with a wonderful series, actually two wonderful series, by author Gail Carriger. Her Parasol Protectorate series um, featuring a female protagonist without a soul who investigates paranormal activity in London during the 18... I want to say 1860s. Yeah, I want to say 1860s, but it might be 1870s, 1880s. Um, she has a later spin-off series of this that's set at the late Victorian, early Edwardian period, and I haven't read that yet, but um, really great, really smart exploration of gender roles and fashion and cultural um, and social uh, hierarchies and um, 
as the series progresses, we get some interesting interaction between uh, British citizens and Egyptians and um, the French and other um, cultures with which the empire of Britain was deeply engaged throughout the period. And as somebody who's interested in archives and manuscripts, there's this really interesting thread about um, the main character's father's diaries that um, is not to be missed, especially if you're into um, things like Stephen Marx's The Other Victorians and scholarship on um, 19th century sexuality. Um, the other Carriger series that you should check out is the Finishing School series, which is set a bit earlier in the period and follows a cluster of girls as they attend a finishing school for unusual young ladies to become spies. So I think the first one is called Espionage and Etiquette. Yes, Espionage and Etiquette. It's great. It's lots of fun. There are, There's a steampunk dog who I really enjoy in this series. Okay, up next is Elizabeth Watteson's The Dark Victorian series, and this is sort of like, if you liked Penny Dreadful, you will love this. The main character is um, the ghost of an executed criminal who's been raised by the government to um, solve crimes and punish criminals as part of her sentence, and she's also a lesbian, so lots of great stuff going on. I've read the first two. There are more forthcoming amazing things. Um, item three, Elizabeth Bear's Karen Memory. I was blown away by this book, especially the use of dialogue and the characterization. Um, this is set in the Pacific Northwest in the 19th century and follows a, quote, seamstress, which is um, a euphemism for a lady of the night as she solves crime, saves her damsel in distress, and um, is generally hilarious. So the sequel is coming out this year, I think, and I am waiting with hot, twitchy hands to get back into this world because it was so amazing. Okay, next. Number four, Cherie Priest's Bone Shaker. Also set in the Pacific Northwest, this is 19th century Seattle with zombies and giant infernal machines, and it is amazing. I recommend listening to the audiobook of this if you can get your hands on it. There is an app I use, it's called Libby. It lets me check out audiobooks from my library on my cell phone um, and just listen at my own pace, so it's amazing. But if you like zombies and the 19th century and the Pacific Northwest and inventions, then you'll like this one as well. Okay, and then the next thing I have to recommend for you is actually not a novel. It's a novelette published on, I think, Tor.com. I'll link below um, by P. Julie Clark, and it's called A Dead Gin in Cairo. Set at early turn of the 20th century Cairo, I think 1912, um, and it's very steampunky, very, um, it's not Eurocentric, it's, th the main character, Fatima, is amazing and loves, uh, early Edwardian menswear and kicks bleep, um, so you should not miss this short story. This is the kind of thing that I really want to see more of as somebody who's very invested in 19th century steampunk and neo-Victorian literature. Um, and then finally, in my steampunk recommendations, Sarah Gailey's River of Teeth. 
there are actually multiple sequels or other things to read in this series. This um, is a an alternate history set in the American South and involves hippo cowboys and a caper. <laughs> that's a that's an inside joke. You have to read the novel to get why why that word choice is hilarious. Um, features a cast of diverse characters whose hijinks are delightful, and I need to read the, the follow-ups quickly as soon as I get this next dissertation chapter drafted. Okay, um, and then I have two novels that I don't know really how to categorize other than as speculative neo-Victorian. So there are elements that make it more sci-fi fantasy than a typical neo-Victorian, but they're not really steampunk, or at least one of them isn't. The other one I still need to read, but I keep hearing such great things about it, I couldn't not recommend it to you. So the first is Catherine Valente's The Glass Town Game, and this takes the Brontes' juvenilia and turns it into a fairy world and then sends the Bronte children into that fairy world. And it is brilliant and breathtaking and a romp, especially if you are super into the Brontes like I am. Um, and it does some really, really smart things. I'm actually writing about it in my dissertation, but I will not bore you with that. You should pick it up. I also listened to this one on audiobook and it was amazing. And finally, Jeanette Ng's Under the Pendulum Sun, which, as I already mentioned, I have not yet read, but is supposedly Bronte-esque, pretty gothic, imagines um, a character, a Victorian missionary character, spreading the good word in fairyland, and things do not go according to plan. So it sounds like a really great uh, look at the Victorian propensity for missionary work, and it's um, implicatedness in colonialist endeavors and just the problematic things surrounding that. I am really looking forward to reading it. It's what I'm taking with me to London next weekend, so I will update you with my thoughts on this probably on Twitter. But um, there you have it. Those are my neo-Victorian and steampunk recommendations. I hope this gave you a sense of the genres and what they can do, what they do do, <laughs> um, what they can and oftentimes do accomplish as they revisit the 19th century. I don't know that I've spelled it out as much as I intended to, but you kind of need to read these novels to experience the extent to which authors take a look back at the 19th century, think about how things were, think about how things could have been, or what people were trying to make things like, and really revisit or challenge some of the worldview or day-to-day um, -day status quo assumptions that people were making then or do make now about the 19th century. So um, some of these works really highlight the diversity that existed in the period and the um, variety of lived experience because we often look back and think, oh, things were more black and white back then, things were more repressed back then. That's not necessarily the case. Um, these novels also often imagine what we inherit from the 19th century and how that informs us for better or for worse. Not always for better, but not always for worse either. 
All right, I will be back soon with an episode specifically about graphic fiction and comics and webcomics in this same vein. Thanks for listening! Transition music for this episode was One-Legged Equilibrist Polka by Circus Homunculus, available via Creative Commons Attribution License at freemusicarchive.org. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. All episodes are produced by me, with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, by Mr. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the Ball!